Merry meeting, blessed be. Welcome one and all to the Spiral Dance.
Mary Mead, and welcome to this week's edition of the Spiral Dance. I'm Hawthorne, and I'm very happy you could join me. We're just listening to the opening tracks from the Moody Blues' very beautiful album called On the Threshold of a Dream. Those tracks were In the Beginning, followed by Lovely to See You. This week, we're going to do some thinking about deism. Deism, as an encompassing thought and philosophy, had a major influence over those we in America call our founding fathers. Thus, the shape of our Constitution is very much a product of deism. But what's the connection between deism and paganism? Well, you know, in the 18th century, many deists spoke of a creator god or the god of nature. They connected to the divine through rational thought processes and by connecting with nature. Now, clearly, the deists of 1775 would scoff at the pagans of today. But we at least have nature in common. So let's take some time to learn about deism and maybe derive inspiration from deistic quotes. And I've got the spiral dance build we towards the end of the show that is all coming up for you. Right now, here's music from Dolores Keene with Salad Ground here on the Spiral Dance with Hawthorne. <laughs> Blue 
Our theme this week is deism. I'm going to start off with what is deism. Deism is a theological position concerning the relationship between the creator, that's quote unquote, and the natural world. Deism holds that God or creator does not intervene with the functioning of the natural world in any way, allowing it to run according to the laws of nature. For deists, human beings can only know God via reason and the observation of nature, but not by revelation or supernatural manifestations like miracles. Those are phenomena which deists regard with caution, if not skepticism. Deism is related to naturalism because it credits the formation of life and the universe to a higher power using only natural processes. Deism may also include a spiritual element involving experiences of God and nature. The words deism and theism are both derived from words for God. Deism is from Latin deus, and theism comes to us from Greek theos. However, deistic thinking has existed since ancient times. Among the ancient Greeks, Heraclitus conceived of a logos, or a supreme rational principle, and said the wisdom by which all things are steered through all things was both willing and unwilling to be called Zeus or God. Plato envisaged God as a demiurge or a craftsman. Outside ancient Greece, many other cultures have expressed views that resemble deism in some respects. Nevertheless, the word deism as it is understood today is generally used to refer to the movement towards natural theology or free thinking that occurred in 17th century Europe and specifically in Britain. Enlightenment thinkers under the influence of Newtonian science tended to view the universe as a vast machine created and set in motion by a creator being that continues to operate according to natural law without any divine intervention. This view naturally led to what was then usually called 
necessaritanism. The modern term is determinism. The view that everything in the universe, including human behavior, is completely causally determined by antecedent circumstances and natural law. As a consequence, debates about freedom versus necessity were a regular feature of Enlightenment religious and philosophical discussions. Deistic viewpoints emerged during the scientific revolution of the 17th century Europe and came to exert a powerful influence during the 18th century Enlightenment. Deism stood between the narrow dogmatism of the period and skepticism. Though deists rejected atheism, they often were called atheists by more traditional theists. There were a number of different forms in 17th and 18th century. In England, deism included a range of people from anti-Christian to unchristian theists. Prior to the 17th century, the terms deism and deists were used interchangeably with the terms theism and theist respectively. Theologians and philosophers of the 17th century began to give a different signification to the words. Both theists and deists asserted belief in one supreme God, the Creator, and agreed that God is personal and distinct from the world. But the theists thought that God remained actively interested in and operative in the world which he had made, whereas the deists maintained that God endowed the world at creation with self-sustaining and self-acting powers and then surrendered it wholly to the operation of these powers acting as second causes. Perhaps the first use of the term deist is in Pierre Verret's Christian teaching on the doctrine of faith and the gospel from 1564. Verret, who was a Calvinist, regarded deism as a new form of Italian heresy. Verret wrote, as translated from the original French, there are many who confess that while they believe, like the Turks and the Jews, that there is some sort of God and some sort of deity, yet with regard to Jesus Christ and to all that to which the doctrine of the evangelists and the apostles testify, they take all that to be fables and dreams. I have heard that there are of this band those who call themselves deists, an entirely new word which they want to oppose to atheists. For in that, atheist signifies a person who is without God. They want to make it understood that they are not at all without God, since they certainly believe that there is some sort of God whom they even recognize as creator of heaven and earth, as do the Turks. But as for Jesus Christ, they only know that he is and hold nothing concerning him, nor his doctrine. According to the deists, our reason gives us all the information that we need. Matthew Tyndall, in his book Christianity as Old as the Creation, says, quoting, By natural religion, I understand the belief of the existence of a God and the sense and practice of those duties which result from the knowledge we, by our reason, have of him and his perfections and ourselves and our own imperfections and of the relationship we stand in to him and to our fellow creatures so that the religion of nature takes in everything that is founded, the reason and nature of things. Consequently, the deists attempted to use reason as a critical tool for exposing and rejecting what they saw as nonsense. John Tolan, in his 1696 writing entitled Christianity Not Mysterious or a treatise showing that there is nothing in the gospel contrary to reason nor above it, 
tells us, quoting, I hope to make it appear that the use of reason is not so dangerous in religion as it is commonly represented. There is nothing that men make a greater noise about than the mysteries of the Christian religion. The divines gravely tell us that we must adore what we cannot comprehend. Some contend that some mysteries may be, or at least seem to be, contrary to reason and yet received by faith. Others contend that no mystery is contrary to reason, but that all are above it. On the contrary, we hold that reason is the only foundation of all certitude. Wherefore, we likely maintain, according to the title of this discourse, that there is nothing in the gospel contrary to reason, nor above it, and that no Christian doctrine can be properly called a mystery. So the concept of deism covers a wide variety of positions on a wide variety of religious issues. Individual deists varied in the set of critical and constructive elements for which they argued. Now, the terms constructive and critical are used to refer to aspects of deistic thought, and they did not indicate any sects or subtypes of deism. As Peter Gay notes in his book, Deism and Anthology, quoting, all deists were in fact both critical and constructive deists, all sought to destroy in order to build and reasoned either from the absurdity of Christianity to the need of a new philosophy or from their desire for a new philosophy to the absurdity of Christianity. Each deist, to be sure, had his special competence. While one specialized in abusing priests, another specialized in rhapsodies to nature, and a third specialized in the skeptical reading of sacred documents. Yet, whatever strength the movement had, and it was at times formidable, it derived that strength from a peculiar combination of critical and constructive elements. Some deists rejected miracles and prophecies, but still considered themselves Christians because they believed in what they felt to be pure original form of Christianity, that is, Christianity as it existed before it was corrupted by additions of such superstitions as miracles, prophecies, and the doctrine of the Trinity. Some deists rejected the claim of Jesus' divinity, but continued to hold him in high regard as a moral teacher. Other, more radical deists rejected Christianity altogether and expressed hostility towards Christianity, which they regarded as pure superstition. In return, Christian writers often charged radical deists with atheism. Most deists saw the religions of their day as corruptions of an original, pure religion that was simple and rational. They felt that this original, pure religion had become corrupted by priests who had manipulated it for personal gain and for the class interests of the priesthood in general. According to this worldview, over time, priests had succeeded in encrusting the original simple, rational religion with all kinds of superstitions and mysteries, irrational theological doctrines. Laymen were told by the priests that only the priests really knew what was necessary for salvation and that laymen must accept the mysteries on faith and on the priest's authority. This kept the laity baffled by the nonsensical mysteries, confused and dependent on the priests for information about the requirements for salvation. The priests consequently enjoyed a position of considerable power over the laity, which they strove to maintain and increase. Deists referred to this kind of manipulation of religious doctrine as priestcraft, which was a highly derogatory term. Deists saw their mission as 
the stripping away of priestcraft and mysteries from religion, thereby restoring religion to its original true condition, simple and rational. In many cases, they considered true original Christianity to be the same as this original natural religion. As Matthew Tyndale put it, quoting, it can't be imputed to any defect in the light of nature that the pagan world ran into idolatry, but to their being entirely governed by priests who patented communication with their gods and to have fenced their revelations, which they imposed on the credulous as divine oracles. Whereas the business of the Christian dispensation was to destroy all those traditional revelations and restore free from all idolatry, the true primitive and natural religion implanted in mankind from the creation. The humanist tradition of the Renaissance included a revival of interest in Europe's classical past in ancient Greece and Rome. The veneration of that classical past, particularly pre-Christian Rome, the new availability of Greek philosophical works, the successes of humanism and natural science, along with the fragmentation of the Christian churches and increased understanding of their faiths, all helped erode the image of the church as the unique source of wisdom destined to dominate the whole world. In addition to discovering diversity in the past, Europeans discovered diversity in the present. The voyages of discovery of the 16th and 17th century acquainted Europeans with new and different cultures in the Americas, in Asia, and in the Pacific. They discovered a greater amount of cultural diversity than they had ever imagined, and the question arose of how this vast amount of human cultural diversity could be compatible to the biblical account of Noah's descendants. In particular, the idea of Confucius, translated into European languages by the Jesuits stationed in China, are thought to have had considerable influence on the deists and other philosophical groups of the Enlightenment who were interested by the integration of the system of morality of Confucius into Christianity. In particular, cultural diversity with respect to religious beliefs could no longer be ignored. As Herbert wrote in De Religioni Laci from 1645, quoting, Many faiths or religions clearly existed or once existed in various countries and agents, and certainly there is not one of them that the lawgivers have not pronounced to be, as it were, divinely ordained, so that the wayfarer finds one in Europe, another in Africa, and in Asia, still another in the very Indies. The publication of John Locke's An Essay Concerning Human Understanding from 1689 marks a major turning point in the history of deism. Since Herbert's Da Veritate, innate ideas had been the foundation of deist epistemology. Locke's famous attack on innate ideas in the first book of the essay effectively destroyed that foundation and replaced it with a theory of knowledge based on experience. Innatist deism was replaced by empiricist deism. After Locke, constructive deism could no longer appeal to innate ideas for justification of its basic tenets, such as the existence of God. Instead, under the influence of Locke and Newton, Diaz turned to natural theology and to arguments based on the experience and nature, the cosmological argument and the argument from design. Peter Gray placed the zenith of deism quoting from the end of the 1690s when the vehement response to John Toland's Christianity Not Mysterious started the deist debate to the end of the 1740s when the tepid response 
of Conyer Middleton's free inquiry signaled its close. Now, some contemporary deists believe with the classical deists that God has created the universe perfectly, so no amount of supplication, request, or begging can change the fundamental nature of the universe. Some deists believe that God is not an entity that can be contacted by human beings through petitions or relief. Rather, God can only be experienced through the nature of the universe. Some deists do not believe in divine intervention, but still find value in prayer as a form of meditation, self-cleansing, and spiritual renewal. Such prayers are often appreciative, that is, thank you for, rather than supplicative, that is, please grant me. Some deists practice meditation and make frequent use of affirmative prayer, a non-speculative form of prayer which is common in the New Thought movement. Charles Taylor, in his 2007 book, A Secular Age, showed the historical role of deism, leading to what he calls an exclusive humanism. Now, this humanism invokes a moral order whose ontic commitment is wholly intrahuman, with no reference to transcendence. One of the special achievements of such deism-based humanism is that it discloses new anthropocentric moral sources by which human beings are motivated and empowered to accomplish acts of mutual benefit. This is the province of a buffered, disengaged self, which is the locus of dignity, freedom, and discipline in endowed with a sense of human capability. According to Taylor, by the end of the 19th century, this deism-mediated exclusive humanism developed as an alternative to Christian faith in a personal God and an order of miracles and mystery.
in the phases of the moon in the center often stood a woman equal with the others and respected for her worth one of the many we call the witches the healers and the teachers of the wisdom of the
Okay, I've got some uh, quotable deistic thoughts that I wanted to uh, share with you right now. The always interesting anonymous tells us to teach us how to live without certainty and yet without being paralyzed by hesitation is perhaps the chief thing that philosophy in our age can still do for those who study it. Jack London once said, the proper function of man is to live, not to exist. I shall not waste my days in trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. Bertolt Breck has said, do not fear death so much, but rather the inadequate life. And this is from Eleanor Roosevelt. You gain strength, courage, and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You are able to say to yourself, I lived through this horror. I can take the next thing that comes along. You must do the thing that you think that you cannot do. And from William James, the pragmatist turns away from abstraction and insufficiency, from verbal solutions, from bad and a priori reasons, from fixed principles, closed systems, and pretended absolutes and origins. He turns towards concreteness and adequacy, towards facts, towards action, and towards power. Henry David Thoreau said, if you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now put foundations under them. An anonymous also once said, The most formidable weapon against errors of every kind is reason. I have never used any reason, and I trust I never shall. Now here's a teaching from the Seneca Nation. No one could lead a happy life or even one that is bearable without the pursuit of wisdom and that the perfection of wisdom is what makes the happy life. Although even the beginnings of wisdom make life bearable, yet this conviction, clear as it is, needs to be strengthened and given deeper roots through daily reflection, making noble resolutions, and not as important as keeping the resolutions you have already made philosophy, the guide of our lives, the explorer of all that is good in us, exterminator of all evil. It is you who have brought peace into our lives. You who have relieved us of the fear of death. 
In life generally, the contemplation and study of nature are far superior to the whole range of other human activities. And also from Anonymous, the deepest knowledge and contemplation of nature is but a very lame and imperfect business unless it proceed forward into action. To be really respected is to be loved, and love and fear will not mix.
live it together Don't let it slip It's time you try living on the high side of the bay You need a rest Any man or a woman with a wish to fade away Could be so blessed Okay, yes indeed, that was Gordon Lightfoot with Seven Island Suite. We also heard Charlie Murphy in there with Burning Times. And Dolores Keene started the set off with Solid Ground. Now it's time for this week's Spiral Dance Spell of the Week. And hey, let's start off March with a spell. How do you like that? This is for Friday the 1st of March, and this is called the Gender Balance Ritual. March is a gender equality month. Throughout history... The war between the sexes has created a lot of casualties, although some of the worst inequities have been addressed. Yeah. Domestic violence and sexual assault still haunt our society. Women often bump into a glass ceiling at work. Men often have trouble keeping custody of their children in a divorce. We all pay the price. In paganism, we explicitly acknowledge the duality of nature and honor the balance between the divine feminine and the divine masculine. It's our responsibility to manifest that ideal in our own lives. So here's a prayer to help you do that. Let each of us see ourselves in the other and the holy in the whole. Let us honor women's strength and men's compassion and children's promise. Let us build a world where gender exists not as a barrier, but as a bridge. Okay, that was offered by Elizabeth Barrett. It appeared in the 2006 Witches Spell Day Almanac. Great place to start. Can't beat that. Give that spell a try. Send me an email at RadioHawthorne at Yahoo.com.
Okay, here on the Spiral Dance, we are going to go back to the Moody Blues' beautiful, beautiful album on the threshold of a dream. We're going to do the closing tracks. We're going to start off with The Dream, Have You Heard Part 1, The Voyage, and Have You Heard Part 2. When the white eagle of the north is flying overhead, and the browns, reds, and golds of autumn lie in the gutter, dead. Remember then the summer birds with wings of fire for you come to witness spring's new hope, born of leaves decaying. As new life on the threshold of a dream. Always to 
know how nice it be. Moody Blues from their album On the Threshold of a Dream, the last closing tracks. The Dream, Have You Heard Part 1, The Voyage, and Have You Heard Part 2. And that's going to do it for me for this week. I want to thank you for joining me. I had a great time talking about deism and stuff like that. I hope you enjoyed it too. I'll be back again next week with a brand new show. Until then, Mary Part, till Mary Meet Again, Blessed Be.